Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. One of my favorite things about serving this church is I keep discovering new treasures. I was waiting for a streetcar out here on St. Clair Ave and pivoted and looked at our beautiful church's facade and I saw what I hadn't seen before, two gargoyles sticking their tongues out at me. These were supposed to prevent demons coming close once upon a time. I'm not sure that ever worked. Anyway, there's also a niche where a statue goes, but there's no statue there. In medieval Christianity, that would be a place for Mary, mother of our Lord, Notre Dame. But with the Protestant Reformation, we got nervous about honoring saints And so we left a lot of those niches empty. I wonder who we should have. I mean, is there a Timothy Eaton sculpture that's unaccounted for somewhere? I mean, I guess he gets the name of the whole thing, so probably not. I sort of like the idea of Mary being up there. Because when we Protestant churches took her down, we usually ended up putting a statue of whoever was the ruler of our country. (laughs) This is not progress. It'd be better to have Mary keeping watch over the gargoyles and all of us. The third Sunday of Advent is traditionally a day when we honor Mary. If our Catholic siblings in faith major in Mary, we Protestants leave her off the syllabus, except at Christmas time, because you can't have a pageant without the girl from Nazareth. Peasant girls all over the world take to Mary naturally. The more skeptical or academic among us might scorn, but the poor and teenagers love her. There's a t-shirt loose out there maybe you've seen that says, Mary is my homegirl. We wants it. Of all the ways God might have chosen to reclaim the world, God didn't choose a powerful army to invade. God didn't choose a powerful man like Herod or Pilate or even Zechariah. God chose an unmarried Jewish teenage girl from the sticks with an unplanned pregnancy and an unlikely story to explain it. I mean, this is how weird Christianity is. Our God has a Jewish mom. Our passage from Isaiah is pregnant with hope. Judah has been conquered by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., carried off in exile its temple burned, its people given foreign names and religions, its future cut off and buried. The worst has happened. Judah's God has failed. All that's left for the people to do is die, and their faith evaporate. And in this place of disaster, Isaiah speaks hope. When the worst strikes, it's like the void in Genesis before creation. God speaks into nothing and makes all the things. In Judah's case, the worst is exile. Because God promised that land to that people. God lives at one temple way in Jerusalem. And now that address is dust and rubble. 
I sometimes worry for churches that think they have a future, that have everything planned out, all the money they need, all the people they need, all the plans they need. I mean, what do they need God for? I have hope for churches that aren't sure what their future is, that are nervous what it looks like, because their only hope is the resurrection of the dead, which is the only hope worth having. Now, Isaiah could have just said, don't worry, you'll come back from exile. But prophets don't do prose. You know how much of the Middle East is desert, right? I checked the Google machine, it says 80% of the Middle East is desert. Nothing much can live. Isaiah says the desert will bloom. It'll be blanketed with flowers, not sand. My Tuesday Bible study folks, a little more into gardening than I am, said, oh, that happens. If there's a flash flood in the desert, sometimes there's a super bloom. But Isaiah's hope is wilder still. The desert will run with rivers permanently. God isn't just promising a restoration of what was before. God is promising the desert will become the Garden of Eden. Israel's scripture is the first environmentalist book. The prophet cannot talk about the restoration of the people without the restoration of the land. I love our ecological age, trying to stop the harm we've done to the planet. In other words, we're trying to catch up with the prophet Isaiah in 500 BC. For Isaiah, God moves whole ecosystems until they bloom back to health, the flush of pink on their cheeks, paradise. See, prophets are imagination people. They ask us to dream big. And then they say, no, 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 that's not big enough. Dream bigger. Make it impossible. You ever been asked when you became a Christian? Maybe by someone rudely intruding themselves into your life. What do you say? Well, a baptist sort of answer is when I ask Jesus into my heart to be the Lord of my life. A more mainline Catholic Orthodox answer would be when I was baptized like these this morning. Here's Isaiah's answer. I will be a Christian when all creation is healed, when all deserts bloom unendingly. Our answers are too small. Salvation includes our hearts, sure, but it also includes every desert not yet in bloom, every ecosystem that's not yet paradise. Then Isaiah promises a highway for God, a holy way, a gentle stroll through a blooming desert. No one can get lost, no predator lion, no haunt of jackals, just redeemed people on parade. You hear what he's promising? A second exodus, delivery from death in Egypt, in slavery, back into life. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs used to describe Judaism this way. Judaism is the claim that the only God there is intervenes in history personally to free slaves. Isaiah says that's coming again. God's action for the crushed. 
See, this is what's amazing about God. It's not just that God did amazing things a long time ago, far, far away. Amazing is all God does. Creation, exodus, restoration, resurrection. These aren't one-off miracles. These are templates. They're patterns. This is how God always works. I've got a friend and former student who's an Armenian Orthodox priest, grew up in Montreal. He and I studied together in Vancouver, pastored in an Armenian church. He doesn't just speak Armenian, he dreams in Armenian. He didn't just go to Armenian schools, he directed an Armenian school. He advocates for that people that were the first victims of genocide in the 20th century. Armenia is his whole life, literally. He's got no wife or children. He's a priest. He's married to Armenia. I asked him once how often he goes, and he said, oh, uh, it was a little awkward. I've never been. To the place that is your whole self. Yeah, I know. He said, I want to go when I can go for months, not just days or weeks. We Christians are formed by a place we haven't yet been. It's already here. We just haven't visited yet, let alone moved in. That is the world God is bringing. And the people sing. Scripture promises the ransomed of the Lord shall come to Zion with singing. This is not a defeated mob dragging itself, straggling across the desert with desperate thirst. This is a procession, proudly marching in grand robes, singing on a royal way, the desert in bloom, the rivers in place of burning sand. I can tell you something that would improve your health right now, and it's going to sound like a commercial. Join this choir. I can show you with literature that joining a choir will lengthen your life. If I tried to sell you a drug for that, you would offer me millions. All you have to do is come to practice occasionally. There's something about singing that makes you a new you. Now, I can't find this claim. Don't ask me for this footnote. But I remember reading, there's a good determiner for whether a child will grow up and stay involved with church as an adult. It's not if one parent brings them to church. It's not even if two parents bring them to church. It's if their dad sings the songs in church. Now, I know my fellow dads, we often don't like to sing unless it's ACDC at full blast in the car going too fast, right? But if you sing the songs in church, your kids will notice. They notice everything. It's scary, right? And that song will burrow down deep in them and stay there. So I don't care if you don't want to sing the church songs. Sing them anyway. It's not a test for how good a singer you are. It's a bet on a next generation. It's one of those famous sayings that's attributed to everyone from Mao to Plato to whoever. Give me your songs. I don't care who writes your laws. Give me your songs. I don't care who writes your laws. Culture is way more important than legislation. Taylor Swift is way more powerful than Justin Trudeau or Joe Biden. So let me encourage you, friends, sing the songs in here. 
they will raise you to new life. I'm not exaggerating. Another preacher tells the story of being at a family bedside while the patriarch was dying. The whole family was there except one grandson. No one knows what to do in those moments. So someone said, let's sing his favorite hymn. And as they sang, a mighty fortress is our God, the dying man joined in. He hadn't opened his mouth in days. He sang all the verses, and then he died. His son went out to the hallway to call the absent grandson, and he said something else. He said, son, I need you to do something for me. I need you to get to church. I need you to learn the songs. So that way, when I'm the one in that bed, you can sing me all the way to life. When a people in the ancient world was defeated, its temple burnt, its worship uprooted, that meant its God had failed. It ceased to exist. Israel is cut off. It is no more buried. That's when God intervenes, promises a new creation, a whole new exodus, a desert turned into a rainforest, a procession singing down a royal highway. This is a hope that's not in our heads. It's in our lungs. It's in our guts, in our marching feet. In the black church in the U.S., they like to say, God doesn't always come when you want, but he's always on time. My mentor, Will Williman, is here for today's covenanting. Tells a story about fellow college students in the 1960s coming down to South Carolina, where he's from, to be part of freedom marches for black voters. And as all these activists got off the buses from all these colleges all over the Northeast, they were taken to sweltering little churches and told to sing freedom songs for hours. And after a couple hours, one of them would have the temerity to ask, I thought we were going to a rally or there was something about voting. And some mother in Israel would say, have you ever faced dogs before? Trust me, you need these songs. Let's sing for another hour. Those freedom songs birthed a whole new world. That's God's way of revolution. When Isaiah promises a choir processing through the desert, what he's saying is Babylon didn't kill our songs. God just used Babylon to make them get born all over again. And right in the middle of this dream, we have this. Isaiah says, The eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be opened. The lame shall leap like the deer. And the tongue of the speechless sing for joy. What did Jesus spend most of his time doing? Healing. If you look at his business card, it says first century Jewish exorcist and faith healer. Now be careful. Some disabled people say they don't want their disability healed because it makes them them. So I asked a friend with cerebral palsy one time, will you have your disability in heaven? And he thought, and he said, yes, but it'll be the most beautiful thing about me. Arguably, it already is. Miracles come in lots of guises. Back to that empty niche out front to Mary, to the one who gives birth to all this raucous freedom. When Mary is told she'll give birth to God, that a revolution is brewing in her untouched womb, what does she say? 
her older, more powerful, more wealthy, more important relative, Zechariah, failed this test. He told the same angel, Gabriel, oh, um, see, that's a problem. I work here. I have the keys. I open and close. And I come here every day. One thing that never happens is an angel doesn't show up with new news from God about saving the world. This isn't happening. I have a master's degree to prove it. And the angel says, you're not allowed to talk anymore. (laughs) It's the perfect punishment. If God's people can't listen for a fresh word from God, we shouldn't speak. So how is Mary going to do? She's younger. She's a she. She's much less powerful and important. The angel Gabriel says, you're going to have a kid. And Mary says, I am a kid. And the angel says, shut up. You're going to have a kid. And this kid's going to be God's kid. And God's going to heal everything through this kid. What do you say? All creation waits for the word of a preteen girl. And she says, okay. <laughs> or, here I am, the handmaid of the Lord. Be it done unto me according to your word. And her whole self starts to swell with God. You see why we put her front and center? We moderns sometimes debate the virgin birth. Which seems odd. If you grant that God could create everything that is, the virgin birth is not that hard, okay? But in this debate, liberals say nah, conservatives say sure. Here's a more interesting question. Is God still in the miracle business? Does God still do this sort of thing? Save the world through preteen girls? Here's what the virgin birth is saying. In Israel, nobody important gets born without a miracle. Their mom can't conceive or they don't, haven't found the right per, or whatever it is. God moves and then the mother's pregnant and then you have the person. For the birth of Jesus, God does something even more impressive. God winks. My kids would say God flexes. Mary's not even a candidate for motherhood. She's not a wife. And yet she becomes mother of the one we all need. One ancient theologian, St. Simeon, says this, God had already made a person from no parents, Adam. God had made a person from a man alone, Eve. God makes persons from two parents, all the rest of us. The one thing God had not yet done was make a person from a woman alone, Mary. That's the way poets and artists view the world. Now, if that's too much for you, here's another glimpse of the virgin birth. Anytime any of us believe something new happens in the world, when you step up to get baptized, join a church, when you do something brave, something you're not sure you should do, something takes root, and it grows. Mary believed so much, she got pregnant. What's going to happen when you believe? even just the tiniest bit. You see why churches put her up there, front and center, in that empty niche? Maybe let's climb back up there and put her back, shall we? This teenager who gives birth to a whole new creation, just like God is getting ready to do through you.